Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. We get together every other week with some of the smartest women in this business and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy with ETF.com, and today I'm catching up with Bree Williams, Head of Practice Management at State Street Global Advisors. Welcome, Bree. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited we get to chat again. So Bree is a repeat guest. That she's that good. So we're really excited to, to have her back on the show. I'm excited to talk today about some of the insights you have on the advisor space. So you guys at State Street just did a really interesting advisor survey that from what I've read, kind of looked at questions that we don't seem to ask that often when it comes to their understanding of some of the basic things in terms of cost and diversification. So before we get to to the meat of, of your findings, you know, tell us a little bit about the survey. You know, what answers were you looking to to find the answers to what, what questions, you know, who were surveyed and, and all that good stuff. Absolutely. And I think that's a good foundation for us to begin with and, you know, taking the time to understand um, what knowledge investors have or don't have uh, gives us an opportunity to take a step back as an industry and perhaps close some gaps. So when you think about just how explosive the growth of ETFs and then coupled with the price wars that have been going on that are behind the investor demand for lower cost ETFs, we wanted to take a pulse. You know, where, what is the level of understanding that the average investor has today when it comes to awareness of investment fees? So there were some specific questions that we wanted to get a deeper understanding with. So first of all, you know, what's influencing their investment decisions today? Secondly, do they understand what they're actually paying for products versus paying for advice. And this in particular has been an area of confusion for many investors before. We also wanted to know what's their baseline knowledge of investment concepts, something like what's diversification. And then last but not least, what are the factors that will rise in importance for an individual investor when evaluating investment products like ETFs? So we took the opportunity because we wanted a real-time snapshot. We wanted to do something relatively quickly so we could put this this research out into the marketplace and, and make some productive action follow through, we did an online survey. And we did that across a nationally representative sample of adults. We collected the data this past June, June 18th through the 20th, to be precise. And then we, because we were looking for very specific insights, we wanted to do a custom low-cost analysis. So out of our total survey sample, which was 224 adults, they were required to have investable assets of 250 thousand U.S. dollars or more. And we needed about half of those to be working with a financial advisor. So in addition then to looking at the low cost analysis component, we wanted to then take a gender lens and a generational lens to the information and see if there's any statistically significant findings that differentiated themselves. So applying that those two lenses gave us a chance to peel back some deeper layers. We also were able to look at the advised investor 
versus the self-directed investor. And just in broad brushstrokes, we did see some changes and differences generationally, as well as between the advised versus self-directed investor. Not a lot of differences between the gender. So when we talk about, you know, in the ETF space, it's all about low cost and the fee wars and the, you know, path to zero, all this stuff that, you know, we talk so much about. I find it fascinating the idea that the understanding of cost is not as widespread as we assume it is when we're talking about this stuff all day long. Is this low understanding of what costs specifically go into your investment versus your advice, is it is it surprising to you? Where's the information gap here? Is it because once you are working with an advisor, you assume it's a one fee and everything is included uh, and you don't understand that, you know, each ETF or part of your portfolio that you're investing in, there's different fees associated with it. I mean, where's the information gap? So there's some truth to that. I mean, in general, financial advisors and our industry, we talk a lot about fee transparency and really looking to show some progress, like how far have we actually moved the needle in educating investors about the price of advice? Yet when you look at data, not unlike our survey, the stark reality that we're confronted with uh, continues to put forward that confusion remains prevalent. Investors still do not have a firm grasp on what they pay for both investment products as well as the guidance that they receive when working with a financial advisor, if they're working with a financial advisor. Now, for some, that may raise some eyebrows, but for us, unfortunately, it's not surprising. You know, case in point, this this particular finding really sticks out for us. You know, nearly half, 47% of individual investors from our survey believe that the management cost of investments like a mutual fund or an ETF are already included in the fee that they pay their advisor or to the investment platform. And that's definitely a misperception that should be corrected. And notably among those survey respondents, individual investors that are currently working with a financial advisor, 60% or more, they're likely to agree with this statement versus just under 40% of the self-directed investor. And going one step further, there was a generational difference here too. And we observed that difference uh, with the younger investor. So the younger the investor, the more likely they were to agree with that false statement. So in addition to having some murkiness around an investment fee versus an advisory fee and what's included versus what's in addition, there's limited understanding of how low low cost actually is when it comes to a fund expense. So let me break that down a little bit. So among those investors who think they understand expense ratio or basis points, the average expense ratio they consider to no longer be low cost is 0.61%. Meanwhile, the acid-weighted average expense ratio of a U.S. open-ended mutual fund is 0.51%, and the average weighted ETF cost is just 0.20%. So from my seat, being with an ETF provider, our perspective, low cost is generally considered funds that have an expense ratio of 0.10%. So that's six times lower than the threshold of what investors have in the survey for defining 
a low cost product. So those insights really reinforce an important point for all of us here. And that's how the individual investor perceives the price is just as important as the actual price itself. So when you think about the intense competition on pricing that pervades many industries, financial services, of course, included, that only makes the consumer perception of price more important than ever. Um, When you look at the findings of the survey in aggregate, and then you start peeling away at some of the additional insights we wanted to look at, such as factors that have influences on one's price perception. In our survey, what we found is rather than the management cost of the fee being at the top of their priority list, we saw other features come to the top. They were prioritizing things like quality of the stocks that are in the fund, performance compared to peers, and performance compared to benchmark over management costs of the fund. So it's in the mix, but that actual price point of that product is somewhere more in the middle. And we did see where price was more at the top, let's say the top third, the management cost of the fund ranking in the top third as an important factor for investors was only for about one third of the investors we had surveyed. What's fascinating about that to me is just to think about, you know, maybe all this focus on, you know, racing to zero in terms of fund fees was a little misplaced because clearly the tolerance for a higher fee is there, at least based on the survey. So that's a little surprising to come to that realization in terms of just money left on the table in a, in a very simple sense, right? It also, you know, bodes the question of whether the concept, if we think of ETFs specifically, have we done such a great job at communicating the value proposition of ETFs as a vehicle being a low-cost offering that the actual number is slightly irrelevant, if that's even a fair word, to a lot of people because they just assume that they're approaching an ETF from this perspective that it is a low-cost wrapper anyway. So whether it's 60 basis points or 20 basis points, it doesn't matter. What matters is, you know, are they quality stocks? Are they what I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. You know, Have we done enough of a job, I guess, of conveying that value proposition of the wrapper. We could do better. And I think that, you know, that underscores just how much more conversation, education, and application needs to be taking place. I think we've done a decent job helping with some basics when you think about definitions, terminology, if you will. But the how to put things to work and the why and showing some visualization techniques. So, you know, showing the impact of fees in the portfolio over the long view, you know, through visualization, you can, you're able to communicate more clearly total cost of ownership. So we haven't gone far enough. I think we've just scratched the surface and can definitely do more. It certainly bodes well for our industry. And more importantly, it bodes well for the end client because they simply want to be prudent with their investment decisions. Now, Brie, is it surprising to you at the, that number, I think it was 50-something percent, I don't remember now, so correct me if I'm wrong, but of the folks, investors working with advisors who still don't have a clear understanding of what's the advice fee and what's the fund fee, is there the communication gap there? Is it the advisor who's not doing uh, as good a job in communicating with the client or why would that percentage be that high? So I think you were onto something earlier in your comments where you'd mentioned, you know, there's an emphasis on all in fee, 
you know, I'm going to just use a general average 1% for the financial advisory fee. There's the limited understanding that there's costs involved with the products that will be part of the portfolios that will make up the financial engine designed to achieve the goals that you have in your overall financial plan. And even if they're using very low cost or no cost platforms to onboard their clients into these products, it's in the fine print. And I think it's worth reviewing and providing that transparency in total cost of ownership. Uh, because at some point there will be a transaction charge associated with the product, whether that's in the expense ratio, if the day comes, they sell it, and you're getting into your retirement phase and tax considerations and actual distribution of the funds in the portfolio itself. So there's other things to be thinking about that may not be immediate cost-wise that are worthy of conversation. And that's something that we've been putting the onus on individual investors to be assertive ones on asking some of those questions. And if they don't know the questions to ask, then the conversation doesn't automatically happen. That's not to paint financial advisors with a broad brush of they're not doing a good job. I think that they want to uphold their fiduciary standard. They want to do the right thing by their clients. They want to have these conversations. We have to meet in the middle to make sure we have that comprehension and understanding of total cost of ownership. Mm-hmm. No, totally agree. Another thing you found on the survey that I, I wanted to, to dive a little bit into, it was just the concept of diversification. Talk another one that we sort of take for granted, I think, just that everybody understands what diversification means. Mm-hmm. The survey found that's actually not the case. There's a lot of misconception about the very concept of diversification. So, you know, walk us through what did you find? What's what's the story here? Sure. And that's a really interesting one to, to take a look at because investors, of course, need a good sense of how investment expenses compare, but they also need to be thinking about other key factors when evaluating their product considerations, be that a mutual fund, an ETF or other. And they need to be thinking about risk and volatility, tax efficiency, as well as that impact on that portfolio diversification, all better to inform that price value. So you're right. The findings on low levels of understanding diversification is really interesting because after all, the idea of spreading money across different kinds of investments is so accepted. It's very straightforward that it's a fundamental principle that even a newbie investor knows about. And our findings confirm that General understanding, meaning, do you know about diversification? The answer is yes. But where the difference lies is it's one thing to know about the principle of diversification, but it's another thing to understand how diversification works. They're two different things. And this is where our findings bring that to light. Is about half of investors from our survey agreed with this statement. A well-diversified portfolio is having investments in a variety of accounts at different platforms. Now, we all know that's not true. And what was interesting is not only did you have about half of investors agreeing with that false statement, we did also see generationally that the younger the investor was, the more likely they were to agree with that. So I can appreciate the mindset of, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. So they think they're protecting themselves by opting to work with several investment advisory firms or platforms. But you and I both know that creates the potential for inefficient portfolio management. And that may also add complexity to one's financial life while also potentially increasing 
costs. Now, in an effort to learn more here, we did a little digging around with some secondary research to gain some additional insights. And we can look to academia to shed some light and past studies there that are designed to assess whether an individual understands the effects of diversification. Those studies often include measures of financial literacy. So the benefit to including financial literacy measures helps shine a light on whether and if so how an individual's beliefs about diversification may vary based on their financial knowledge or their experience in the financial realm. So that would explain why a younger investor may be more likely to agree with that false statement of defining how diversification works. Because we know that diversification and the amount of risk in a portfolio is no more determined by the number of advisors or accounts that you hold, but rather it's determined by the number of stocks that you own. And as academic research demonstrates, almost all of the risk in the portfolio is determined by its asset allocation. So when we think back to our ultimate purpose and then the role of low cost, we believe that a strong portfolio core really needs to provide that vital support that an individual investor needs so they can pivot confidently in any direction to pursue their specific investment goals, whether that's managing risk, generating income, or growing capital through diversification. And this is where financial advisors can shine because they can help provide that education to their clients about diversification and deploy techniques like visualization, which is a more illustrative way than relying on statistical principles alone. So those graphical methods to visualize potential portfolio outcomes, I think will prove to be more fruitful in how we successfully communicate things like risk and diversification and ultimately understanding. Yeah, I was completely surprised by the, the outcome of that, the question, because I would have never guessed that the answer to diversification is all about platform risk. So the biggest concern is, you know, can this platform go bankrupt or disappear or be, you know, hacked or it's, it was very surprising when we think about diversification, we talk about the idea that, you know, when one asset in your portfolio is winning, there should be another one that's losing if you're truly, truly diversified. And uh, just the platform risk was a total curveball in, in the conversation. So, which is why I love surveys, honestly, because you discover all sorts of things that you may not even have thought about before. Exactly. Now, this is, you know, the first year you guys have conducted the survey, but you've done others. And mm -hmm. so in your in your role of really being in touch with the advisor space and practice management, you know, what else here really stood out to you as a an interesting, perhaps unexpected insight, also relative to the other work you've done in this space? Sure. So a couple of things come to mind and, and think it's worth repeating. It's, it's still disappointing that things are murky when it comes to understanding and the application of some core concepts, never mind price. So, you know, we've taken measures as an industry, you know, that are designed to significantly enhance important information like disclosures. But it seems that those are insufficient on their own because very little has changed in those key areas like the lack of understanding investors have about fees for products and fees for services. So there continues to be room for substantial improvement here on the impact of fees on investment returns. We need to do more than just disclose away. The burden of a lot of this understanding 
in the absence of having a conversation falls to the investor. They have to work hard to figure out where their fees apply and how they will be charged. Money for an individual investor can still be a taboo topic. So we have to remove some of those barriers and make this a comfortable, transparent, and conversation that we want to be having and encourage having. So the tougher industry regulations there's a place for them. The calls for increased transparency, we need that. And that helps give investors back their confidence because we can see trust levels in the industry improving slightly over time, which is a positive. But the findings overall underscore that we have much more work to do. And unfortunately, most of that does fall to the financial advisor. So it's a challenge, but it's a tremendous opportunity for them to embrace their fiduciary relationship and not shy away from these difficult conversations. When you think think about it, the investor is simply looking to have confidence, confidence that I'm as an investor, I'm not overpaying for my returns in the largest part of my portfolio and recognizing that reducing fees where I can, where it makes sense over the long term, using high quality products is good practice and something I should be focusing on as an investor. And that's more important than, say, chasing out performance, because in the context of you know pursuing better investment outcomes, in this case, more so than others, every little basis point is going to count here. No, absolutely. And I think, too, you know, to your initial point of perception of cost, just this reminder that cost and value are two different things, right? So for an for an investor, you know, the price tag may be not as important in its as a nominal number is not as important as, you know, the value it represents in what they're trying to achieve. I mean, I would agree with that 100%. And you can easily give them some examples that just put things in black and white. So, you know, if their objective, let's say, is to tailor the core of their portfolio based on uh, risk constraints or return objectives or even tax considerations. And you're looking at fixed income solutions. Fixed income ETFs can serve as a low cost portfolio building block. And because we need a tangible number here, I'm going to lean on what I know. So if I look to the low cost spider portfolio ETFs, those ETFs, their median expense ratio is six basis points. Mm -hmm. Comparing that to other options, let's say a fixed income mutual fund, that's going to be about 90% less expensive. So giving them the compare and the contrast so they can thoughtfully think about where do I need a high quality but low cost solution and how to do that, that will help create the comprehension you're looking for. Bree, I think we'll have to wrap it up there. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always a pleasure to get together with you and pick your brain about the advisor space. So thanks for for joining us today. I was glad to be here and thanks for having me back. Thanks folks for listening in. We are so happy you are here. For previous episodes or more information, check out ETF.com. If you would like to learn more about women in ETFs and get involved with that organization, I highly recommend it. Check out womeninetfs.com. On behalf of ETF.com team and myself, thanks for listening and we will catch you next time.